Now this morning we come to message three from the book of Job, and we have a unique title today, Miserable Comforters. And everybody said, Amen. That was very appropriate, Pastor Randy. The second verse of chapter 16 is an incredible statement from Job as he speaks to his friends. Miserable comforters are you all. Now I want you to know that it's perhaps a little hard to understand the narrative that follows, but basically Job says to these friends, I wouldn't have done that to you had you been where I am. Why are you so ornery and why are you so mean to me? He said in verse 4, I could speak as you do. If your soul were in my soul's stead, I could heap up words against you. But in verse 5 he says, but I would strengthen you with my mouth. As I was looking at this passage, there came truth to my spirit that I want to share with you today. And I've never in my ministry spoken on this particular theme to my remembrance, but I feel very much led to do so today. Here was a glorious opportunity for Job's friends to speak words of counsel and words of encouragement. A marvelous opportunity when a man was down at the bottom of the ladder and in terrible trouble they had an open door to strengthen him and to lift him and to encourage him, but instead they did the opposite, and he had to say, you are miserable comforters. What has happened to the old adage, a friend in need is a friend indeed? That is a good statement. It's a good philosophy. It's a good idea, but it's not practiced by too many. Not only in his day, but in our day. Why did these friends talk to Job like they did? You want to know why? Because they wanted to philosophize. They wanted to enter into all kinds of arguments about why the boils and why the sons and the daughters were slain and why the animals were stolen and why Job was in the pit that he was in. They wanted to philosophize about the whole thing. We are so prone to want the history of the case than to render assistance. And people sit there crying for help and reaching out for a helping hand, and we want to philosophize about the thing. We play the inquisitor at times, just like they did, not really to know the needs of the needy, but often to find reasons why we should not assist them why we should keep out of this mess. You know the old thing, I don't want to be involved. I read that in the paper again this week. There was an accident where a child was killed by an automobile and there were three supposed witnesses and one of them said, I don't want to be involved and they had none of the names of any of the witnesses. Now that is the tendency of our time. If a man be crying out, as so in Acts 16, what must I do to be saved? He needs an answer. 
He is not ready for a long philosophy and a conversation about the origin of sin or the fall of man or how he got to where he is. Paul said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. There are too many people doing head trips with theology and don't know Jesus and don't feel his love and they've never shed a tear for anybody, never shed a tear over the lost. They've never been at an altar of prayer crying out to God, but they can sure philosophize and they can tell you all 16 tenets of the faith, but don't know God. Job's comforters, you miserable comforters. Now, these friends deserve that kind of epitaph, miserable. But let us not be too hard on them because their descendants still exist. We may be in the family. That's why I feel so inclined to share with you these truths. Now, there are two major points to my message. Why are we here, and what can we do? That sounds simple enough, doesn't it? And under each of those, we're going to share you some concepts that I trust will bless you and help you. Why are we here? It's very simple. Very simple. Jesus said, here is the reason, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, let's begin with the first statement, to love God. Why are we here? We are here to give our life to Jesus Christ, first of all, foremost. To give our life to Christ. We don't really begin to live until we do that. You cannot love God without going through Jesus Christ. No man comes to the Father but by me, Jesus said. You must fall in love with Jesus Christ. You must ask him to come into your life and forgive you of your sin. You must become a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple of Jesus Christ, a servant of Jesus Christ. Some of you have come to church today needing that kind of experience. You need to say before this service is over, Jesus Christ, come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. Blot out my iniquities. Become this day my Savior and Lord. And I'm going to give you that opportunity to give your life to Christ. That is the place to begin. That's why we're here. We are to love God. And we come to him through his son, Jesus Christ, who gave his life a ransom for us all. But immediately after meeting Christ, we share that life with others. And that's where this story comes in today in Job 16. Job's friends forgot that affliction is not necessarily judgment. They saw only the surface and reasoned from only what they saw. And that is the tendency of too many of us. They looked at the outward circumstances of Job and evaluated that there must be many things wrong in his life. But, dear friends, the New Testament teaches us so very clearly, as does the Old, by example anyway, that tests and disciplines come our way 
if we are truly a follower of the Lord. The Bible says in James 1-2, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, and that word divers does not mean going out into the sea and going down and looking for clams. It means many temptations. When you fall into many temptations, then count it all joy. You will never develop the character that will enable you to joy in tribulation unless there is frequency of occurrence. How do you like that? That's the way it is designed. And to look at others who are going through the problems that Job was going through and evaluate by saying there must be something wrong with them. You are outside of the purpose and the will of God. We do not have that right. Because the Bible teaches us emphatically that when we fall into many temptations, we should count it all joy because the Lord is working out a divine purpose, a marvelous plan that will glorify and honor Him in the days to come. Yesterday I slipped by Brother Beiser's home and I heard his voice from the bedroom. He said, is that my pastor I hear? And I can yell just as loud as he can. I said, yes. So I went back as he was lying in bed, shared with him, and it was God's timing because he needed to unload on somebody. And I said, Forrest, I'm preaching in the morning about miserable comforters. I want you to know that everything you're sharing with me is in order. You need not apologize for anything in the world that you're feeling. I hope he doesn't mind me just sharing these moments. They were so meaningful to me because I love that man like he was my own brother. He said, Pastor, I've tried to serve God all my life. I said, I know it. You've got fruit all over the place. You have been faithful to God, and I don't want you to think for one moment that what has come upon you and that tumor in your head has anything to do with you not being faithful to God. It has nothing to do with that whatsoever, and I've come to tell you that. Oh, he said, I want so much that God would be glorified through whatever is happening to me that he might get the honor and the praise from it. And I said, Forrest, he will. He will. I know he will. Tears streaming down his cheeks, he looked up to God and he said, I will trust you, Lord. I will to trust you. I will to believe you. And then I added, and Lord, we will praise you even with that tumor in his brain, we will praise you. We prayed together, cried together, and I hugged him and he kissed me and I kissed him. You know, there is a brotherly love like there was with David and Jonathan that's right. When it's of God, it's beautiful. 
but you get into the smut of this world and their kind of love, you can have it, brother. When you've got the real thing, you sure don't need anything else. When it's of God, it's magnificent. We look at people and say, I wonder what they've done. Listen, tests and disciplines are going to come our way, and we're going to count it all joy. That's what I've come to tell you today. Count it all joy when you fall into many temptations. And don't sit in judgment on those who are going through the rocky place and the hard place. God is doing something that we cannot see yet. And we're going to trust him to bring about a beautiful picture of joy and gladness and wholeness and victory. No matter what God chooses, we can say as Job, I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust him. Then we must come to the place where we realize we can't please everybody in this world. I feel so free today. I feel like the songwriter who wrote, there is a place of quiet rest near to the heart of God. Isn't it wonderful not to have to impress anybody? You can just be yourself and let Jesus Christ live his life through you and let him worry about the results. But the Lord has revealed to me for this service that there are some of you in church all tied up in knots because you're so worried about what everybody in this world is thinking about you about what's happening to you, maybe physically, happening to you maritally, happening to you in the business world. Listen, God's word to you is, forget it. There is a place of quiet rest near to the heart of God, and God wants you today, before this service ends, to move into rest. Stop worrying about everybody else and worry only about your service to Jesus Christ. Serve him only, and when you do that, everything else will be all right, no matter what they're saying. That came to me in kind of a funny way the other day when I heard about a boy who was searching for a wife, and he was having real results. In fact, he found several possibilities. He brought one home, and his mother said, no, she is not domestic enough. Well, that discouraged him, and so in time he let her go and brought another one home. His mother analyzed her and said, no, son, she is not pretty enough. That discouraged him, so he brought a third one home, and would you believe this mother said about that third one, well, son, she is just not quite cut out for you. She is too negative. So, finally, the fourth one, and the mother liked her, and the boy was ecstatic. The only problem was the father didn't like her because she was exactly like the boy's mother. You can't please everybody. Stop trying. Hey, that's theological. That's God's word to you today. There is a place of quiet rest near to the heart of God. And we need to find that place and live our life.
miserable comforters because they would not allow Job to do that. And then I want to say that love wins. You can be theologically right but emotionally wrong. Did you know that? Paul wrote about that to the Corinthians. In fact, three chapters in 1 Corinthians, he devotes to that subject, chapters 8, 9, and 10, how they were theologically right but emotionally wrong. For example, in chapter 8, verse 1, he said, Now as touching things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but love edifieth. What was he saying? We know that we're not to touch that meat offered to idols. We know that. But knowledge puffeth up. Where's your love? Chapter 9, he said, To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I have made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Chapter 9, verse 22. Why did he write 1 Corinthians 13? Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, I can give my body to be burned, I can prophesy, but if I have not love, I am zero, nothing. Absolutely nothing. Love wins. Miserable comforters. No love. No compassion. No real concern for Job. Just wanting to philosophize and accuse and say, Oh, Job, curse God and die. To the weak became I as weak that I might gain the weak. When I was pastoring in Olympia, I entered into a diversionary activity that some of you know about. But often you don't know the reason for things like this. You see, I became an umpire in baseball and a referee in basketball for high school and college games. Did this for numbers of years. Found it very helpful, but that's not the make major reason I did this. I did it because I wanted to get into the community and touch coaches and athletes for Christ. It was an amazing experience for me, an honest umpire, blind but honest. <laughs> I called a kid out at second base one day in an important game, and he was out, no question about it. And he jumped up and started to rant and rave, and then he tore off the field. And at the end of the game, he ran out on the field and said, Pastor Cole called me pastor. He said, I want to apologize for the way I acted. Now, that's unique. He said, you were right. Well, I said, of course. <laughs> I began to see athlete after athlete come to Christ. They started coming to our church. Coaches began to attend church. What a thrill it was the other day when up north to discover that the baseball coach at Timberline High School, whom I had worked with and whose wife was converted while I was there, had just come down the aisle to receive Jesus into his life. Now the football coach at Timberline and the baseball coach are Pentecostal believers. One high school. That's what Paul is saying. To the weak, you become weak. You become all things to all men that you might save some. 
You try to get out there where the world is and influence them for Jesus Christ, and when they have a crisis in their life, they're going to know who to turn to, where to turn, because you have manifest the love of God in their life. Oh, Norm got so convicted when I would come to umpire his games, I know he was angry that I was appointed to his game because it reminded him every time I walked on the field that he hadn't yet given his heart to Christ. That's what we're in the world for. Salt, light. City set on a hill that cannot be hid. We give our lives to Christ and then we look around and follow into the second phase of Jesus' words. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And if you're going to do that, you've got to know who your neighbor is. You've got to be out there in the right spirit, reaching out to them, touching them, lifting them. We must never lose sight of the particular need of the other. That is what I believe God's message is to Capital Christian Center at this particular hour. I believe we're on the verge of the greatest revival we have ever known. I believe we are on an explosive keg of dynamite, but we must begin to see others in their need and not be judgmental about them. We must love them for who they are in Jesus' name, and we must put our arms around them, and we must urge them to Jesus where they can find an answer to their need. Next Sunday, every seat in this building ought to be filled in every service. As we go out to touch people, they're out there. As we give our lives to Christ today and go out with eyes like Jesus had to look for the needy, they will come to us and we will find them and we will be able to lead them into the place of wholeness and rightness the way God intended it. We do not want to be miserable comforters. Now the second major point is what shall we do? There's three things I want to tell you that are very practical. First of all, don't cast a person's past in his teeth. We have been watching the James Dobson films on Wednesday night, and excellent they are. He talked about disciplining a child the other night and made, in essence, the statement that if you dwell on the wrong in a child's life, that's what he will specialize in. He will think that's what you're expecting of him because that's what you dwell on. You call him a dummy all of his life, he'll be a dummy. That's right. What about a man? You suspect a man, you watch a man, he will become to you all that you expect him to be. It's the way it works. There was a woman in the Bible who had spent all that she had and was none bettered. Twelve years she had had her ailment, spent every dime, every penny, every denarii she had and was none better. And as a last resort, she came to Jesus. I learned something from what Jesus did that day. Jesus did not say, you have spent everything, now you come to me. Why didn't you come to me first? You see, that's the way we get you want me to be involved in your problem? I've tried to help you 30 times. You want me to help you again? I've heard it in days past. I'm going to leave him. I'm going to leave her. 
not treating me right. Is that what Jesus would do? Notice what Jesus did in Matthew 9, 22. He said, daughter, daughter, be of good comfort. Hallelujah. He didn't cast anything in her teeth. He didn't say, why haven't you come before now? Why didn't you seek me out earlier before you spent all of your money? He just looked at her and said, daughter, be of good comfort. Not a word about the past. I want to use this as a main counseling session. I can counsel hundreds of you in this moment. When he wants to come back, lady, don't you say, but you remember what you did. For heaven's sake, throw your arms around him and love him into the kingdom of God. Don't be so stubborn and so proud. Be like Jesus. Never called anybody a sinner. You know that? The only ones he came close to calling sinners were the religious Pharisees. He gave them some pretty good words. He never said to Zacchaeus, he never said to Mary Magdalene, you dirty, rotten sinner, you go straighten it out and then you see if you can find me. No, sorry. He said, thy sins be forgiven thee, daughter, be of good comfort. Zacchaeus, come down. We're going to go for some tea. And he fell out of the tree at the feet of Jesus and they walked along together in sweet company. That's Jesus. That's the way he wants you to be. Oh, but you say, you don't know what he did to me, or you don't know what she's done to me. No, I don't, and I don't need to know. All I know is that we're all sinners, and every one of us have broken God's laws and God's commandments, and we're all on the same level. We're all in the same boat. We need his forgiveness, and if God will give it, then we've got to give it too. We can't cast a person's past into their teeth. Miserable comforters. They assumed that Job's past had not been well spent and became so judgmental they were of no value to him at all. That's not the ministry of the church. It is here to lift and to forgive and to embrace, to pardon, to love. Secondly, what shall we do? We need to give people a chance. Give people a chance. Friday, I was a speaker at a sales congress in Chico in the Holiday Inn. I was asked to end this all-day congress in the afternoon. And what an assignment that is when you have mostly unsaved people. I welcome those assignments. And my wife and I arrived just a few minutes before my appointed time to speak, and the gentleman before me was just finishing up. He was an executive in insurance from Portland, Oregon. And he told about an experience he had some months ago when he drove his car into the parking garage underneath the building where his office is. There is an attendant there, and they are to park the car, and he was standing there, and this executive got out of his car and started toward the elevator when the attendant shouted to him, where's the key? Oh, he had inadvertently put it into his pocket, so he started to hand it to the attendant when the attendant said, you put it in the ignition yourself. 
but it made him angry. He went on up to the personnel manager's office to have the man fired. Personnel manager said, let me tell you something about that man. He said, just yesterday, he received word that his son was killed in Vietnam. He said his wife is very ill at home. And he had to work today because he needs every dollar he can get for his wife's illness and the difficulties he's going through. That executive turned on his heels, went back downstairs, walked over to that attendant and stuck his hand out. He said, sir, I'm sorry. He began to weep. And those two men communicated together. And a man was lifted and helped when he was given a chance. That's what this world is looking for, just a chance. There's an old chorus I remember from boyhood days in Sunday school, be a booster, not a knocker. I'd like us to adopt that as a little slogan. Some of you like to make posters, make a hundred of them. Be a booster, not a knocker. So easy to be a knocker, isn't it? Anybody can pick up a hammer, smash something to pieces. I can do that. But to build something like this, Brother Miller built for us, no way. I don't even know where to begin. Be a booster, not a knocker. Give people a chance. Just love them and let Jesus' Spirit come into their hearts. Throw your arms around them. Extend a hand to them. Give them a chance. They've been racked by the devil. They've been beaten by the winds and the storms. They have been driven here and there and everywhere and taken advantage of by everybody. Give them a chance. In Jesus' name, give them a chance. Bring them to Jesus. And the third thing God wants us to do as a congregation to keep from being miserable comforters is to be an inspirer. Be an inspirer. There are so many people out there beaten down. They need somebody to inspire them. I don't know anybody more qualified than you. Members and adherents of this church, people who love God and are in tune with the times, be an inspirer. You know that there's no building in this city that could be built to take care of the people if all of us will become an inspirer. You kids on the campus, you moms and dads out there in the workaday world, you housewives with neighbors bleeding inside, to be an inspirer. Oh, that's what I want to be. How many of you take Guidepost magazine? Let me see your hand. Oh, yes, many of you. It's a great little magazine, fantastic stories. True happenings. Well, one story recently was about a young professor of sociology at Johns Hopkins University, Baltimore, Maryland. 25 years ago, this young professor sent his class out on a field trip. He told them to go into the worst slums of Baltimore and locate 200 boys. They were to make a study of the boys' environment, their homes, education and then estimate how many of the 200 would ultimately become criminals. The students pooled all the information they acquired after days of research. They concluded that 180 out of those 200 would end up in jail. 
the report was filed in the archives of the university. Twenty-five years later, the same professor assigned another class the task of locating those 200 boys. He sent them out and said, here's the information. Try to find those same people and see how they've turned out. The sociology class, 25 years later, went out searching for those individuals. Most of them were found. A few of them had died, but the student researchers found that only four out of 200 ever had a jail record. When that professor found that statistic, he sent them out again. He said, find out why. What happened? Their environment was wrong. They were from the slum district. The evaluation 25 years ago had to be correct. 180 out of 200 should have ended up in jail. Why did only four of them go to jail? They went out. The common denominator when they came back after talking with each man was a woman, a school teacher in that slum district. Every one of them came up with the same woman. He said, go find her. They found her in a nursing home, over 70 years of age, told her of the project involving those 200 boys and said, ma'am, how did they become such fine men? What did you do to those boys? She said, why all in the world I ever did was to love them. But she did one more thing. She inspired them. She made them understand who they were and also made them realize what they could become. That teacher visualized 200 fine men in those 200 slum kids, and she inspired them to become what they could not imagine they could become, and they became that with the exception of four. God wants us to be inspirers. This church will not hold the people within weeks if we become inspirers instead of miserable comforters. Rich Wilkerson, our former youth pastor, told me the other day something very interesting. He said, Pastor, you know when you were in Minnesota at the Minister's Institute way back? I said, yes, I remember. He said, well, there was a young pastor there who thought you were something else, and he started ordering all your tapes. Oh, I said, really? He said, yes, and his church just grew and grew and grew because he was preaching your tapes every Sunday. I said, well, that's remarkable. I didn't know that. Then he said the pastor was called to another church, felt led of God to go, left that church jam-packed, a new pastor came in, and the church started to drop. And that new pastor in frustration called up the pastor who had left and said, what in the world is going on around here? I'm doing everything I know to do, and the church is dropping. This preacher said, well, do you get Glenn Cole's tapes? Well, he said, no, who's Glenn Cole? Well, he said, that's your problem. You're not preaching Glenn Cole's sermons. 
If you will get his sermons and preach his sermons, your church will grow. Now, Rich said, I didn't tell you that to build up your ego. No problem. I've got enough to keep me humble. But it does illustrate what I'm saying to you tonight. God has put us here to be inspirers. That's what I want to be. Any way I can, I want to be an inspirer. I want to lift and help people. When they walk through my study door, I want to have a heart that says you're going to be better when you leave here than when you came in. Because Jesus Christ is in me. I'm going to share him with you. And I want every sermon that goes out to do that same thing. If you'll listen to it, you'll be better when you've listened than before you turn the tape on. Because God has put us here in this wicked time to be inspirers and lifters of people's burdens. That's why this church is on this corner to testify to people that there's something better than what they're now experiencing. But friends, how long has it been since you've touched anyone in Jesus' name? You've been responsible to bring somebody up above the problem and into victory, and yes, even into the kingdom of God. All of us can do better. And by God's grace, you're going to do better. We all need comfort in some way or another. Everybody in this building needs comfort. You will seek it in many ways. You will seek it in fame or money or learning or friends, anything pertaining to this world. You can go that way, but there will come a time when you will have to say, miserable comforters of you all, if you seek that route. That's why we've come to church today, because our comfort is in Jesus Christ. We lift up our eyes under the hills from whence cometh our help, for our help cometh from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. When we meet him face to face, we love God and we love each other, and we go out to be an inspirer and a lifter of men. I received a letter this week pertaining to our Christian school. The gentleman who wrote referred to the staff of the school this way, and I quote his letter. I am totally overwhelmed by their ability to reflect a Christ-like attitude towards others, and especially to their work to which is shown much devotion. Oh, I appreciated that. That's what I'm talking to you about. That's what Jesus does. I couldn't express it better. A Christ-like attitude toward others. No matter what boils they have on them, and no matter what hell they've been through, it is Christ's desire that we share his heart, his love, his emotion, his compassion, that we be lifters and inspirers of man. And we're not judgmental, but we care because Jesus cares for us. That's Capital Christian Center's calling. And that's your calling and my calling. Don't be a miserable comforter. 
be a Christ exalter and a people lifter. You'll find more joy than you can handle in this life. Now, friends, that's what I learned in Job 16, and I'll tell you, I never saw it there before, but I sure do see it there now, God's calling to my life and to this church. When Job said, if I were in your shoes, I would give you words of comfort from my mouth. Why is it that you're standing there raking me over the coals, judging me? Miserable comforters are you all. How tragic when the world has to look at the church and say they don't really care. They don't really care. They're just going through motions. They think they're so special. Let's start showing them. What are you saying? Let's let the love of God so fill our hearts today that when we leave this place, the world will look different to us than it has ever looked before. And instead of seeing all the sin out there, we'll see all the opportunity. I said that to these business people Friday. I said, you know, Sacramento is such a fantastic place. It's known as Sin City. In the paper the other day, the headline, highest crime rate in California. I said, can you imagine what that means to me when I've got the answer to it? You talk about an opportunity you talk about an open door. You talk about some things that are going to happen. Can you imagine what I feel when I drive into Sacramento and walk those streets and drive through those neighborhoods? I've got the answer. By radio and television and people that God leads into this fellowship, we're going to touch this city with a bombshell of love. That's God's heart this day. As I stand here, I have a great consciousness of spirit that he's putting into some of you a vision. He's dropping into some of your hearts a dream. You're going to go out and love people you haven't loved. You're going to be, be able to embrace people that you haven't been able to embrace because God's love is being bestowed upon you by the Holy Ghost. Romans 5, 5, the love of God is poured out by the Holy Ghost. And he's here, and he's pouring it out. We're going to stop the judgmental attitude. We're going to be lifters, boosters, and not knockers. We're, we're going to start taking it face value. We're just going to say, hey, you're a person just like me. God loves you. He loves me. He loves you. What can we do together to make our journey lighter? and get into the kingdom of God. Would you bow your heads, please, all over the sanctuary?